Hey guys, my name's Jake Richards and you're listening to the Salary to CEO podcast, the show that helps you make the leap from nine to five to small business ownership to build a life of wealth, autonomy, and purpose. Look, if you're listening to this podcast, you have a big dream for your life. It could be a dollar figure. It could be a vision for your family. It could be like me to run a portfolio of small businesses exceptionally well and become a leader among leaders. Whatever that might be, you've got something that matters to you. And at the very least, a feeling that you want to do something beyond the ordinary. But the reality is when you're sitting in your cubicle or you're on your long commute to a job that, let's just say, is less than exciting, it can feel a long way off, like a pipe dream. And that can be very disheartening. So how do you make that bridge between where you are now and where you know your best life is? What's the pathway to opening up that dream when it feels like there's a huge blockade in the way? Well, five years ago, today's guest, Joe Pompliano, was in the exact same position. He was working in finance and he looked around one day and he realized, man, I don't want to be here for the next 20 to 30 years. In his own words, he felt paralyzed. His big dream was to go into venture capital. The only problem was he had no investor network, no capital, and no logical place to start. So what could he do? Well, he realized he needed to bring something to the table. And the one thing he could do without any huge backing or resources was build an audience. If he could grow a following, he could open up those doors that at that point felt impossible to break down. Fast forward to today, and Joe's dominated the sports business content niche. He's amassed over a million followers across all social media platforms. He features on major TV networks like ESPN and NBC. He's got the number one sports newsletter on Substack called Huddle Up with over 120,000 subscribers. He's worked with F1 teams like McLaren. He's interviewed people like Dana White, Gary Vee, Francis Ngannou, Lance Armstrong, Ryan Garcia, Barcelona FC president, Joan Laporta. The list goes on and on. And off the back of all this success, Joe's unlocked the opportunities to invest in companies like Airbnb, Reddit, Underdog Fantasy, the Premier Lacrosse League, and so many more. All in a period of just five years, Joe breaks down the specific details for how you too can crush the audience-first approach to building businesses and go from where you are at now to your dream life. You're going to be shocked how many times Joe recommends you be posting per day and what strategies he used to supercharge his social media growth. Once you build your audience, Joe shares how you can leverage this into opportunities that meet your ideal lifestyle goals. And finally, he shares his approach to investing in early stage companies, reflecting on some of his fun ventures like a chain of bagel stores, and even investing in the Premier Lacrosse League, the pro sports league spearheading one of America's fastest growing sports. So if you're excited by the idea of using content to launch your business ambitions and dream life, you're about to get the inside scoop from one of the most qualified people in the world to talk on this topic. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Man, we've known each other for a little while and it's been a pretty wild ride up until this point. It has. It's been great. And you've been a big part of that. So I appreciate it. I don't even fully understand what you actually do, like the entirety of what you do. So can you just fill us in a little bit about like literally what the hell are you working on and what have you built? Yeah. So there's a couple different things. I like to tell people that I usually spend about half of my time on investing and half of the time on content. And they sort of work in tandem with each other and they benefit each other in a large way. And I can explain. So a few years ago, I was working at JP Morgan in New York City. I was on the fixed income desk, researching trading bonds, fixed income. It was one of those things for anyone who has worked in finance before. It's a great job. It's a lot of fun. You make good money and and certainly not many people are complaining about it. But at the end of the day, it's a very structured environment. So you come in, maybe you're an intern or an analyst, then you're an associate, vice president, eventually become an executive director and an MD. And that could take five years if you're really good. It could take 10 years. It could take 30 years, depending on kind of the trajectory of your career. But it's super structured and you can kind of almost map out what you're going to be doing a decade from now. 
And for some people, that's really helpful and it's really good because you want to have that safety and that security. But for me, it almost like paralyzed me to some degree. I enjoyed it, but I didn't like knowing that this is what I was going to be doing for the next 20 to 30 years, right? I was sitting across from people on the desk that were 20 to 30 years older than me and were doing similar stuff. So to me, that that was one of those things where I zoomed out for a second. I just said, what do I really want to do over the next couple of decades of my career? And I had started investing a little bit personally in just kind of companies and founders and things in the crypto space that I was able to get access to with personal money, just kind of playing around and seeing what I was interested in. And some of those ended up going pretty well. And what I realized was that I wanted to do more of that. This was kind of right at the beginning of the pandemic. So it's more popular today than it certainly was then. But I thought to myself, what do I need to be able to go do this full time? I'm not able to get access to some of these deals from an investing perspective just based off of, off of my name or my reputation or my job currently. So I should go build an audience, right? If I want access to the stuff, I need people to know who I am. I have to be able to provide value to founders by giving them distribution and other things like that. So that's what I did. I, I thought of you know the intersection of sports and business because that's what I enjoyed the most. So I literally just started writing a newsletter. I started tweeting. I did this all while I was at JP Morgan still. I would wake up at like five in the morning. I would write the newsletter. I'd go to work. I'd try to get a couple of tweets out during the day. I'd go home and I would do more work on that stuff in my free time. And it was one of those things where I wasn't expecting it to go as well as it did so early on. But I think it was probably three or four months later, I ended up leaving JP Morgan and doing this. And that was three years ago. And it's grown a lot over the last few years. I've been able to invest in a bunch of different companies, early stage startups across sports, across technology, everything you could possibly imagine. And I've also grown the audience a lot. I think we probably have close to maybe 750 or a million followers across different platforms from Twitter to Instagram to YouTube. We have a popular podcast that you obviously know about and other things like that. So it's been this nice self-fulfilling thing where I'm able to monetize the content through advertisers. I use a lot of that money to invest in different businesses and those businesses want to be put in the advertising cycle as well, which is kind of part of the deal and part of the bargain here. So it's this newer age model where you're really using content to drive investing. And I think it's worked out fairly well over the last few years and it's certainly been fun. Right. So you're going content first and that's basically creating this kind of flywheel that each one plays off each other. You're building the audience of one parts, give you access to deals, but on this, by the same token, it's also generating money for you, right? To actually go in and continue to invest in these companies. That sounds good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the audience is interesting because most people think about it of just like monetizing it from an advertising perspective. How many people do I have watching the show or listening to the show or following me on Twitter or wherever? And that's certainly part of it. You certainly need to be able to bring money in. But the attention that you're getting from those people is almost more valuable if you think about it in the correct way, right? So it's the reason why some people launch products or services instead of just working with advertisers. If you're able to build something that has enterprise value off the attention of those people, that can be infinitely more valuable than just advertising deals. And why I don't have the capacity or the desire to go build those products or services myself in some instances, maybe there are certain things that make sense, but in most cases, you're almost better off just partnering with other entrepreneurs, people that are building these businesses, taking a stake in them, whether it's investing or advising deals or whatever it is, and using your audience to your advantage to go be able to build these businesses too. And I think that's where this newer age model really works of like, if I can go build this audience, sure, we'll work with advertisers and we'll monetize it to some capacity. But at the end of the day, you're better off using that attention as distribution to go and build these companies rather than just advertising the products themselves. Yeah, it's more like long-term thinking and more a bigger opportunity in a lot of ways. Those advising deals that you spoke about, how does that actually look like? And I don't know whether you've got an example or something you can share, but how does that actually look like? 
Yeah, they're all different. I mean, I, I probably work with like three to four different companies on a given month. Some of them are like longer term strategy plays around me receiving equity in the business and just advising them on social growth, on distribution, on product, on marketing, on different things like that. And then some of them are a little less structured, just, you know, the founder is a friend and they want help on certain things or they want help with distribution or things like that. And the way that I think about these typically is just like, how can I be helpful given the things that I've learned over the past few years, right? So I have a very, what I would call like a very distinct set of skills from what I've determined over the last few years. That's the ability to build an audience online. It's an ability to monetize an audience online. I think I do a fairly well job at content, right? And I think that's, that's been proven given the size of the audience and the growth over the last few years. I think I have a good idea of how to get people to transition from one platform to another. I think I have a good idea of how to get people to buy products or services. So some of that can be super helpful for the right businesses and some of that doesn't apply to those businesses. So it's about finding opportunities to work with people that I enjoy working with and use some of those skills that I've developed over the few years to help them out. Yeah, right. So again, you're just basically leaning on the areas that you have credibility in. And in this case, what you built on the content side, definitely in this digital age with the types of businesses that you're looking at, particularly in the sports industry, eyeballs and audience and interaction and engagement across platforms, that sounds like the kind of, the kind of stuff that you're um, advising on in order to get into those partnerships. Yeah. And, and some of this is most of it at this point is inbound stuff, right? It's just people who have followed me for a few years now and enjoy my work and think that I can be helpful in certain areas. So that's all stuff that I enjoy, whether it's just a friendly conversation or a more structured kind of professional deal from a consulting standpoint. I really enjoy this stuff. You know, I like the audience stuff. I like the investing stuff. I like working with founders and operators. And this is all stuff that I wanted to do when I was at JP Morgan. So it's a variety of different things, but I really enjoy the process of not only working with them, but just every day, every challenge, every problem is a little different. Was there a specific one where you're like, damn, I didn't expect that this would ever be the type of thing that I'd be working on? Or was there like something that you just really loved or out there or something memorable on that front? Not necessarily consulting, but one of the ones I always use on the investing side is people look at what I do for work and they say, oh, you must be specifically investing or explicitly investing in sports companies, maybe sports tech or things like that. And the idea is like, yes, there's certainly some of that because that's where the majority of the audience sits. But anytime you have a large collection of people and you're meeting different people and you have these different professional relationships, you get introduced to other things that I think can be incredibly valuable long-term. The example that I always like to give of this is a shout out to Darren Rovell. So I've known Darren Rovell for a number of years now. He was very kind to me when I first started creating content. He's sort of the, the OG of sports business on Twitter and, and he's done an incredible job. And he was really nice to me when I started. And one year I was out for the Super Bowl. I guess this was two years ago in Los Angeles. And he texted me and he said, Joe, you should come over to this house in the morning. I flew someone out to make bagels for us. I'm like, that seems kind of weird. Why would you fly someone out? It was from Connecticut. Why would you fly someone out from Connecticut to make bagels at the Super Bowl? Like, just go buy bagels. And he's like, no, you don't understand. They're the best bagels I've ever had. So I wasn't really planning on going <laughs> at first. And then once he said that, I was like, all right, if he flew someone out, these bagels must be pretty damn good. So I end up going, we hang out. I have a few bagels and I'm not kidding. These were the best bagels I've ever had in my life. I'm like, who is this guy? What does he do? Like, what's the story here? How does this happen? Turns out he had met this guy a little bit before. His name's Adam Goldberg. He was starting a business called Pop-Up Bagel. So I kind of move on with my day. I'm like, those bagels were incredible. I'm telling some friends about it, whatever. My wife and I ended up getting married a few months later. And I text Adam, who's the nicest guy in the world, which you'll see by this story. And I say, hey, Adam, I know you live in Connecticut. I'm getting married in Vermont. Would you be willing to come the morning after and make bagels for the wedding party? I'll pay you, you know, whatever. And he's like, absolutely no problem. No need to pay me. 
<laughs> come on, dude. Like that's, yeah. that's a little strange. But he literally drove up. He drove up like three, four hours on Sunday morning. This was a few months after I met him for the first time. Made bagels for everyone. Everyone loved him. He tried to not accept payment, but I obviously wasn't going to let him leave without it. And turns out a few months later, he ends up raising money and I invested in the business, right? And now they have a few stores in Manhattan. They're expanding nationally. They're opening up stores potentially in other places across the country. I don't know if I can say it yet. And it's become this like massive success. And it's one of those things where like, did I ever think I would invest in a bagel shop? No, of course not. But it's been a lot of fun. And it's just one of those things where like I met him and the product was just absolutely amazing. He had some mutual friends in common with me. And it was one of those things where like it ended up being a no brainer, but I would have never thought that was a possibility. And it's just one of those situations that you find yourself in when you continue to meet new people and explore new things. Okay. So moral of the story, just make sure when your friends offer you bagels at someone's house, go because you never know it could turn into a multi-million dollar opportunity for you to if, take. If anyone in and around New York City is listening to this podcast, you need to go try pop-up bagels. It's right next to Carbone. I guess that's like closer to the West Village or the Lower East Side. I'm not sure exactly, but it's incredible. It's the best bag I ever had. You're not going to regret it. Trust me. <laughs> That's so sick. We're going to, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to dive into that whole deal a little bit just because it's interesting and left field and a little bit different to, yep. like you said, your other stuff. But I want to actually go a little bit back to those JP Morgan days because, I mean, you just mentioned that it was only three or four months after you started writing content that you left. Obviously, this was not just something little that you were doing on the side. And obviously, this was something that I'm guessing you went all in on at this point. What was going through your mind at that point beyond the initial like 10 to 20 years from now, I don't like myself in this path. I don't like that fixed path. Beyond that, once you decided, okay, I'm going to go sports business content and go for this. How did that sort of progress from that point? Yeah. There was a lot of thoughts that went into it. And like, it certainly wasn't an overnight success. Everyone looks at it and they say that, right? They're like three, four months later, like that must've been amazing. It went off the ground so quick. And like, that's not really the case. When I started the newsletter, the first one went out to one person, my wife, literally. She was the only person to subscribe to the newsletter. I wrote it. I was like, let me try to write a few of them, see how it is. Give me feedback. Like, let's determine if it's good. And I did that for a couple of weeks. Then I announced it on Instagram. And like, I have like 50,000 followers on Instagram today, but at the time I probably had like 800 or something, right? Yeah. And it was like, okay, I got another 15 to 20 of like my close friends who are willing to sign up and read this. And like, that's great. So it started out really slow. But what happened over the following few months was like, I was just reinvigorated from a work perspective. I just really enjoyed it. It was something that I was super passionate about. And I knew that I was willing to do it for a really long time. Like there's certain projects where you get jazzed up about them and you do it for a week, and then all of a sudden it starts to fade a little bit. And you just like internally know, even though you tell people like, oh, it's going really well. It's like, okay, this is wrong. Like this is wrong. Like maybe this is wrong. I wasn't having any of those feelings. Like I was just waking up every single day. I wasn't even thinking what time it was. I wasn't caring about what time I went to bed and I was just doing the work and I loved it. So those was one of those things where I was trying to figure out how can I do more of this, right? JP Morgan was almost getting in the way at that point mm. of what I wanted to do. So I was creating the content online. I was trying to make connections. I was trying to build everything. And then things slowly started picking up. It was something that I thought I was good enough at for people to you know, be attracted to and build an audience. And the turning point for me was the business wasn't big enough to leave my job at all. Like no shot was it big enough at that point from a content perspective to, to leave my job looking back on it. But what I was able to do was there's a non-alcoholic brewing company in the United States called Athletic Brewing. And the founder of it, Bill Schufeld, was a former Wall Street guy. And he started the company because he was going out all the time and he was working out and he used to drink on the job, not on the job, but you know, after work and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he would, he woke up feeling like crap the next day, right? So he was like, ah, there's gotta be a better alternative. He leaves and he starts this non-alcoholic beer company. 
The beer's phenomenal. I was a big fan of them. I got introduced to him by a mutual friend. And we were talking and he had like a very similar background, right? Was on Wall Street, left to go do this passion thing for him. So he totally understood it. And we came to an agreement where he was basically just like, hey, for the next six months, I'll pay you X number of dollars each month. It will essentially match your base salary at JP Morgan from an advertising perspective. I'll be the exclusive advertiser of every single thing that you do online. I'm not naive to the fact that you'll probably get a little bit better of a deal the first two to three months, but the back three to four months, I'm going to get a better deal based on the growth trajectory of everything else. And to me, that was like amazing, right? It's like, I just thought to myself, not only is this dude the goat, right? Like he's just the best for being able to do this, but more importantly, people go and they do these things with much less security, right? So for me, knowing that I had at least six months at a minimum of cash flow coming in that was similar to what I was making at JP Morgan on a salary basis, it was a no brainer. I was like, all right, I got to go do this. So that's what I did. I decided right then and there that I was going to quit and go do this full time. And those six months like changed everything for me because it really allowed me to just focus on the content stuff exclusively and not worry about anything else to do with work. I was getting a little bit more sleep, which actually ended up helping me long term. And it was one of those things where everything just grew over those six months. And when the six months ended, I continued to work with Athletic Brewing in a non-exclusive capacity, but I was able to bring in more sponsors and make even more money than I was previously. So it was like this weird six-month gap where all it really took was someone just taking a chance on me. And obviously, I'm super grateful for them for doing that. And it really accelerated everything else on the content side. That's wild, man. I mean, the key, like the massive lesson there is just around who you're aligning yourself with and what sort of partnerships you're creating and basically what sort of relationships that you're building. Was that something you were actively going out and trying to meet these kind of people? Did you just grow up with people like this? Like, what did that actually look like to have this breakout moment with that person? Because I imagine you were having a bunch of conversations with a lot of people around that time. I was, but I wasn't. Really, it, it just started with me trying to figure out a way to monetize the content. And someone introduced me to him, literally just a mutual friend that had known him like personally, not professionally, not anything. And they were just like, yeah, I think you guys would get along. You know, you have sort of similar stories, Bill's a little bit further ahead in what he's trying to accomplish and stuff. But at the least, I think you guys would be friends. So that's where it started. And then I was just looking for like an advertiser, right? I was like, hey, maybe we can monetize this a little bit. You know, I started out like, let's get him to buy one newsletter. And then it turned into, why don't we just figure out a way for you to go do this full time? And like thinking back, it was so huge for me, but it really wasn't that big for Athletic Brewing, right? Like they have this massive marketing budget now. And like to them, this is probably one of their smallest deals. But to me, it meant the world, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like these different avenues of looking at it of like, what's the world to you may not be the world to someone else. And those are the type of people that you have to go find, right? You just have to be able to get connected to individuals that can make a difference. And ultimately, like I was super fortunate I was able to do that. Who knows if I would have, you know, found someone else to go do that deal. Maybe at some point I would have, maybe it would have happened a few more months down the line or whatever it was. So, you know, things happen for a reason and, and Bill coming in and it's like Bruin coming in with an offer like that was certainly changed the trajectory of the content stuff at the time. 100%. But what sort of numbers were you doing? Like what sort of size were you at at that point for him to be like, yeah, this is someone that I want to bet on? It was small. I mean, I probably had... Relative speaking, right? I think, you know, for some people, again, this could be considered big, but I had like 10 to 20,000, I want to say, newsletter subs. I hadn't even started a podcast. I, that was part of the agreement was that I was going to start a podcast. And the Twitter maybe had like, I want to say 50,000 followers. It was big, but it wasn't nearly as big as it is today. Everything else has increased tenfold, right? So it was one of those things where I was just like making a promise to him that I wasn't even sure that I could keep, but it was like, I'm going to get you guys as much value as I possibly can out of this. 
they wanted one tweet a month. I'm okay. I'm going to go do four. I don't care what it takes. Like, I'm just going to make sure that you guys get the right amount of value out of this deal. So it was relatively small, but I think in the end, it created like this bond between us really forever where like whether they want to pay me for their advertising deal or not, I'm genuinely a fan of the product and I'll yeah. always talk about them. Like podcasts like this, right? Like I haven't talked about a single other advertiser since, but they're one that I'll always talk about because they're truly part of the story of how I started doing all of this. Yeah, man. That's just such a crazy story. But to get to that 10, 20K mark, it's still a pretty big feat. Like you're obviously putting in a lot of time and effort on the newsletter front, just while we're talking about it, it comes to mind. Is that still something that you would recommend someone starting today? Or is that oversaturated? Like we see the whole Twitter newsletter model done to death, it feels like in some ways. But is that still an opportunity that you would recommend for people to do? Yeah, I, th I think it's part of the toolkit, right? Like my advice is always to start with one thing that you're most comfortable with and then expand from there. And the way that I've always thought about this is like it's certainly changed, right? When I started doing this, I primarily grew the newsletter through Twitter threads. The first time I ever did one, I wrote the newsletter. I literally copied it word for word, just copied and pasted it into tweets, whatever it would allow you to do per tweet. And I tweeted it. And I went from getting like 10 to 15 likes to like 50 likes. And I'm like, okay, that worked. Like maybe I should go do more of that. And eventually I got better, right? I optimized the title and I spaced it out a little bit better and it flowed and it was like a real story and people could follow it. And some of those tweets got me five newsletter subscribers and some of them got me thousands of newsletter subscribers based on how viral they went. That, to your point, feels like it's a little bit overdone at this point. I was doing it for years. And when I started doing it, I certainly don't think I was the first one to do it, but there weren't nearly as many people doing it. And today, if I have a tweet go viral like that and I include a sign up link at the bottom, you maybe get a fraction of what you would have gotten in the past because people are just, it's like death by a thousand cuts, right? If you see it every day, you're not going to sign up for a hundred newsletters. You'll read the thread, but you're not going to continue to sign up and sign up and sign up. So that's changed a little bit. But my advice on this is always like, just try to figure out what people are doing and try to do it a little bit differently. And I think the podcast is a good example of this. You know this better than anyone is like, when I first started the podcast, I did an interview show. And I really did an interview show because I thought that's what a podcast was. I was like, okay, that's what a podcast is. You know, like I'm gonna go talk to other people, I'll interview them, it'll be fun and I'll meet people and I'll be able to ask cool people questions and I'll put it out there and people will listen. I mean, I did this for probably a year or so where I was just doing interviews, two interviews a week on Zoom, in person, whatever it was. And what I realized is that there's just so much competition, specifically in podcasts, but also newsletter elsewhere, that you have to do something a little bit differently. And I think one of the smartest decisions that I made was I just zoomed out for a second. I said, okay, what am I really good at? And what it seemed like I was really good at the time was creating the content, right? I had a unique point of view. I was able to give my opinion. I was talking about things that other people weren't talking about in the sports business world. I'm talking about on Twitter and the newsletter, right? So I said, okay, how do I just do more of that? Hell, let's just change the show from being an interview show to me just breaking down a topic. It'll be about 20 minutes long. You'll be able to listen to it on a car ride or at the gym. It's a little bit more relaxed. It's not as much of a commitment. It's just going to be me and I'm going to break down things just like I do in the newsletter and Twitter, which is already popular. And virtually overnight, the show has grown probably four to five acts since then. And I think like, you know, when I look at the numbers, I feel like we're just getting started to some degree, but that was very clearly a pivotal point. And my point around what, you're doing differently is like, there's not a bunch of shows like that, right? There's a bunch of interview shows. There's a bunch of group talk shows, but I don't listen to a bunch of podcasts where it's just one person breaking down a topic that they're passionate about and they think they're better than everyone else at, right? So like, that's one of those things where I was like, okay, I am really good at this. It's obviously working. People enjoy it in other places. Let's just go do it on the podcast. There's people that just want to listen to a podcast. So that's usually my advice is like, find something that you're willing to do forever because the content game is a long game and you need to be willing to dedicate serious time and effort and energy to it.
but also just try to do things a little bit differently, right? Just where, where everyone is zigging, you should be zagging. And I think that the best example of that with me was certainly the podcast and just changing the format. Totally. And from something that just came to mind as you're saying that, something I was reading today from Gino Wickman, you know, Gino Wickman, he wrote that book, Traction, yeah. EOS, that kind of thing. He even talked yep. about, it doesn't have to be something super, super unique. It can just be three things that you do together that make it unique because no one's doing those three things all at once. The other yeah. point that I really am getting out of that, it's kind of a consistent theme for you is you have just made noise and figured out what is getting attention and engagement and then just double down on that, whether it was the Twitter threads or whether it was the podcast when you're trying out different things. You've just sort of stuck around in the game long enough and tried enough things to actually figure it out. And it feels like there's no, not really any other way but that unless you get super lucky from the get-go. Yeah, like the lucky people, that's like literally 0.01%, right? Everyone looks at these podcasts like, oh, this person blew up overnight. Their podcast is so popular. Their Instagram blew up, all this stuff. Like that just doesn't happen. That's such an outlier that you shouldn't even consider it as an option. Truthfully, you literally shouldn't even consider it as an option. The way that I think about podcasting and really content in general is just whoever sticks around the longest is going to win, right? Like your content is going to suck at first. Many people, it really does suck at first. I look at things that I wrote previously, tweets that I did, podcasts that I did, whatever. And I'm like, ah, oh, shit, that sucks, right? And five years from now, I'll probably look at the stuff that I'm doing now and think that sucks. So there, there's a room for improvement with a lot of different things. And one of the strategies that I certainly employed and a lot of people should be looking at too is you want to start with quantity because when you start with content, it's important to just get as many shots on goal. I wrote a newsletter every single day for years, literally Monday through Friday, every single day for years. And the reason why that was so important was because I had never written anything, right? Obviously you write emails, you know, you write letters, whatever it is, but I had never been a traditional writer. I wasn't a journalist. I didn't go to school for it. I had to get better. And I was almost forcing myself to get better through repetition. So I'd find things, I'd, I'd figure out how to edit it a little bit better. I'd figure out my voice and how to structure things a little bit better. I'd work with different images and videos and make it look a little bit better. Those years were invaluable, right? Just to make sure that I became a better writer. Same is true with podcasting, same is true with tweeting. And eventually what you're able to do is you're able to transition from quantity to quality where you do a little bit less. Now I do the newsletter three times a week, but it's much higher quality than it was before. And the same is true with Twitter. I would tweet 10 times a day, whereas now maybe I tweet four to five times a day, and it's just higher quality posts that people enjoy a little bit more. And the ultimate holy grail, which I don't even know if I'm at yet, is you're doing a mix of quantity and quality, right? Where things are high enough quality where you're able to do it consistently without even worrying about it, and you're able to do it at a really high clip because you've done it for so long. You've done it for years at this point. You've done it thousands of times where you don't even have to think about the quality. It's just who you are. It's how you write. It's how you talk. It's how you type. It's a skill set. Yeah, it's a skill set. Yeah, it's exactly that. And I think that is what people should be striving to get to. Totally. I mean, shots on goal is something that's, I like simple words that I can remember and almost like repeat to myself as a little bit of a, uh, it's not an affirmation, but something like that. Just like simple guiding words. Shots on goal yep. is something that's going to stick in my head. And just the main lesson there being lift the number of reps you're doing quantity first, then transition to quality. That's really good. And quite eye-opening when I saw 10 times a day on Twitter. Was that all original content? Was that just sharing your opinion, little like bits and pieces here and there of reposting other people's content? It was everything, right? Because I was trying to figure out what people wanted, what people enjoyed. And you think that you probably have a good meter for that going into it, but you really don't, right? Like what you enjoy is not what everyone enjoys and vice versa. So it was one of those things where I was, you know, I would tweet out maybe like a fact, right? Like, hey, here's the five most expensive sports stadiums in the world. And then I would tweet out my opinion, just being like, 
you know, X, Y, and Z is, is great, or this is stupid, or I think this is going to go really well. And then maybe I'll tweet out something that was like motivational. And I was really just trying to figure out what people wanted from that and from the account and me and what people were enjoying. And that's the quantity part that I think is really helpful is like, you have to figure out what you're good at, what you enjoy doing, what other people enjoy doing, what gets shared, what works from a content perspective to grow other parts of your business and things like that. And that takes time. You can't do that in a day and you certainly aren't going to be able to do it without any repetition. So when I say shots on goal, it's about getting better, but it's also about figuring out what people want. And ultimately that's what enables you to get better. On the back end, were you taking an analytical approach to that? Or were you just like, oh, that worked today. Okay, I'm going to do more of that tomorrow. Or were you looking at the data and being like, oh, this style of tweet and this style of post, this opinion got this much attention, this much click-throughs. How did you approach it? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, everyone's kind of doing it from an analytical approach at some instance because you can see the likes and the tweets totally. and, the, and the impressions and stuff like that. But I wish I could say it was it was more detailed than that. It really wasn't. Like, obviously, you're tracking... You know, I would look at, I'd tweet a thread and I'd look at the bottom, I'd say, okay, how many people viewed it? How many people clicked through? What was the click through rate? Okay, mm -hmm. that makes sense. That was good. That was bad. Out of how many people clicked through, how many people actually subscribe to the newsletter? How many people bounce? Can we do anything on the landing page to make it a little bit better? So there was certainly some like nuance to it of things you can optimize, but I wasn't, I wasn't that concerned about it, right? Like if you're making good content and it's getting in front of the right people, you'll grow, you'll grow 1000%. I always tell people you need two things. You need good content and you need distribution. If you don't have one without the other, it's not going to work, right? If you're able to get in front of millions of people, but the content sucks, no one's going to like it. No one's going to share it. No one's going to subscribe to your newsletter. No one's going to follow you on Twitter or Instagram or wherever. It's just not going to happen because they don't like the content. But vice versa, if the content's amazing, but no one sees it. It quite literally doesn't exist. So for me, it was always about matching those two things up. Let's get really good at the content and then let's just hustle for distribution. Let's ask people to retweet these tweets. Let's get it in front of the right people. Let's reply to their tweets to get it in front of more people. And ultimately what you'll find is like, it's certainly a slow burn at first, but it picks up. It picks up. Like Darren Ravel's a great example. When I said that he was so nice to me when I started doing this, I used to literally message him. I would DM him my threads and I would say, hey man, I think you'd enjoy this. Like, please share if you did. And he would, right? Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately he found out like, okay, this guy is like serious. He's trying to build an audience. Like it's perfectly based off my audience. I probably shouldn't just send him all of my followers. But it worked for like the first three to four or five times I did it. And that gave me a bump from like zero essentially to like five to 10K. And next thing you know, now I have five to 10K and those people are able to share my content and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it compounds on each other. So I think there's a few different ways to look at it, but you don't necessarily need to be analytical. If you want to break it down, you can literally just break it down to those two things. You need good content, and you need distribution. And on the distribution side, I'm hearing be shameless about what you asked for. And again, similar to what happened when you got the first advertising partnership, just make the right friends. And through your relationships with other people, that's going to take you 10 times faster somewhere than what trying to do it on your own is going to take you. Jake, most people don't realize, I don't always like to talk about Twitter because I know that Twitter is sort of like just one of the social media platforms and there's a whole different world outside of there. But I don't know, I assume it's true for other platforms too, but I know for sure. A lot of the accounts that you see growing on Twitter over the last few years, many of them are in, I forget what they call them, but they have a name for Engagement them. They're essentially groups. just group. Yeah, they're just group chats, right? Where people go in there and they share their threads, they share their tweets and they say, hey, go comment, go like, go retweet, whatever. And they all help each other grow by promoting each other's work, right? So you'll see it. Like if you just pay attention, you'll see the same people are commenting on each other's stuff, the same people are liking it, the same people are retweeting it. And that's not bad, right? I, I don't you know, necessarily think it's the best way to do it, but it's a way to do it. It's sort of like a hack of instance of if you're able to make the right friends and the right connections and get in with those groups, 
it's like a cheat code. So there's various ways to do it, but you're correct in thinking that like you need all those things, but ultimately one of the best things could just be that you have good friends and you've made good connections and you've hustled over time and you've really worked at getting yourselves in the right rooms to be able to grow the audience and, and make money from it. I feel like I've just got a masterclass in content, right? But one of the things I'm really curious to peel back the layers on today is pump investments and that side, because you said that sort of 50% of what you do is content, 50% is sort of the investment side. I'm checking out your website and I'm saying you're making early stage investments in companies like Airbnb, Reddit, Underdog Fantasy, even the Premier Lacrosse League. Was this always the plan? How did you kind of get started on that side? And how active are you on that on a day-to-day -day basis? How active are you in that? Yeah, the, the active part, you know, changes. It depends on sort of market conditions, but I would say fairly active. Everything's personal money, so there's no outside capital, which I think is, has its benefits and its challenges. Obviously, you're probably not as active as you may be if you were managing outside capital and were able to pull people's money together. But ultimately, by having like full 100% skin in the game, if you're making good investments, then it's much more beneficial to do it that way. And that's one of the things that I've learned over the years and ultimately why I decided not to raise a fund and go out and invest other people's money was I wanted to just do it for myself, right? I like talking to founders. I like working with operators. I like figuring out different challenges and businesses. So that's really why I started doing it. If you wanted to just look at it from like, what's the best way to make money? It's probably not early stage investing for a lot of people. It's just mm. not. It's super risky. If you don't have access to the right deals, you're really not going to be making money. It takes, in most cases, at least seven to 10 years to pay out. It's really, really, really difficult to do it well. But if you're able to do it, what we'll call like the top one to 5% there, then I think it's worthwhile. And that's really what I've tried to focus on is companies that I have unique access to through what I've built on the media side to get involved in some of these deals, not only help, but also make a meaningful inflection point in the business through the audience that I've built. And some of those certainly aren't that way, right? Like Airbnb and other ones like that, Reddit, not that way. But Premier Lacrosse League is, right? I'll tweet about their metrics all the time. I go to the games. I talk to uh, the founders, Paul and Mike Rabel. Right. Like, so there are certain things that I can help out with. Underdog Fantasy is another one that's specifically in the sports space. And we do a bunch of those deals every year. And I think those are the ones that I'm really focused on now of like, where can I actually provide value and meet that top 1% threshold of like, this is a good deal that I would do regardless. Yeah. And I think similar to what you had when you got that first sponsor, right, which allowed you to leave JP Morgan to go in and take a risk on this content adventure that you went on. You've almost got that on a bigger scale in when you're investing your personal money into these early stage investments, these early stage companies, and you might not be able to touch that capital for seven to 10 years, if it even goes well, you've still got the cash flow coming in from your business, which is your content business. So that's sort of consistently keeping your float while you're able to take some of these more calculated risks in something that you clearly have a bit of an edge in and it's a skill set as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's all about just figuring out kind of like how you want your life to look too, right? Like I've been approached several times over the last few years. I don't say this in a way to be like cocky or arrogant, but like when things go well on the content side, you get approached by people, people that want to take what you're doing and supercharge it with either money or expertise or talent, people that think that it can be a little bit bigger than it is, people that want to raise money or people that want to go build, you know, media companies, stuff like that. And what I've always said to a lot of these people is like, in most cases, I really just value my lifestyle, my time, and my freedom much more than I would if I went out and raised money, became in like an official CEO, had a board of directors, and like wanted to go build some media. It's not nearly as appetizing to me just from a pure structural lifestyle standpoint. 
And that's not true for everyone, right? Some people want to go try out and hit a grand slam. And my whole argument with that is like, if you're able to make a good amount of money doing this personally and you have way more freedom, is that better than the opportunity or the chance to potentially make a lot more money if things go well, but lose all of that, right? Give up 10 years of your life to go make sure that you try to go do that and still only have a small chance of success. And that's the question that I think other people have to answer that are in these situations is like, do you want to build something bigger than yourself or do you like the lifestyle and the quality of freedom and independence that you have through what you're doing currently? And for me, it's always been the latter than the former of like, I kind of like what I'm doing, right? I like the freedom that I have. I like the independence that I have. I like knowing that like, yeah, sure, sports is 24-7, it's nights and weekends and like, I'm probably on my phone much more than other people are. But ultimately, if I want to go and grab lunch with my wife at two o'clock on a Tuesday, like I can, right? And I think there's certain things like that that have been incredibly valuable to me over the long term. And those are the things that I'm focused on making sure stay in my life for the foreseeable future. It's an awareness piece, right? Like you are aware of what you value and you've got your principles and you've got, I guess, that vision. And that started all the way back in JP Morgan about what you wanted your life to look like. And you built accordingly. On the Grand Slam front, what's cool is you haven't completely shut that off. It's just that you're not going for grand slams yourself. You're backing other people to go for grand slams. And that's where that kind of early stage company model is kind of cool for you because you get to still partake. I'm sure that's still a lot of work involved, but without the grind, you can still maintain your lifestyle, what you spoke about. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good way to look at it. And the other thing I would say is like, that doesn't mean you won't ever do it, right? Maybe an opportunity comes up where you feel like the chances of success have been greatly increased by the amount of people that are involved, quality of people that are involved, or the amount of money that you're able to raise or the connections that you have at this point. Or maybe it's just a great idea, right? So it, it's just like how many of those things can you merge together at once? And then maybe that's the perfect opportunity. But I haven't seen anything like that today where it makes more sense to give up what I value most. And those are the things that you have to kind of constantly debate with yourself is like, what does this opportunity look like when you get approached with it? Does it, you know, cross off X, Y, and Z on my checklist? Or should I wait for something else to come up? Because maybe that will be a little bit better. Totally. Has there been a horror story? Like, has there been something just being like, oh my God. With investing or advertising yeah. or content? Yeah, on the investing side. I've certainly lost money on some deals. Yeah. <laughs> Those yeah. aren't fun. Yeah, there's, there's certain things where you're just like, sitting in this seat, you, you definitely do some due diligence, right? Where you're like, you want to talk to the founders, you want to understand, you know, what the business entails, how much money they're planning on making, what the product roadmap looks like. You want to talk to other people that are investing in the business. You want to get referrals. You want to do certain things like that. But I think one of the things that I realized early on was all that stuff is much harder to do when you're doing it on your own. So in a lot of cases, and I certainly did this at first, people sacrifice some of those things for just comfort, right? For like ease of, of making the investment. They'll just say, okay, I know this person, this other one's involved in the deal. Like, no problem. I'll write the check. Super easy. And those are the ones that typically don't go well, right? Because you see later on, you're like, damn, why are they spending money on this? Like, I probably wouldn't invest it if I knew they were going to do this. And you can only really know that stuff early on if you're willing to put in the work and, and you know, have conversations with people that are involved in the business, really get a sense of their previous work and their chance of success and other people that they know or referrals and, and other people that are investing in the business. So there's been, I don't want to name, you know, specific companies and stuff, but people have certainly done things where you're like, eh, okay, maybe that wasn't the best use of, of capital off the balance sheet. Like, let's maybe not do that again. And, you know, certain companies have gone out of business, of course, and you just want to limit those and, and uh, try to pick as many winners as possible. But that's the fun thing about the venture stuff, right? Is like, 
one big bet, one one that goes really well, can pay for all the losers, right? Because it's mm. just a game of power loss. You just want the most successful company that you can possibly find. And when you're investing early stage, like if you lose a little bit of money here and there, it's okay as long as you have a few bigger ones play out well. And, and that's certainly been the instance so far. Totally. And you obviously value your freedom, hence why you set up your life this way and you've got your priorities in check. But is there ever times where it's actually hard to be hands-off with some of this stuff in terms of the actual operations? Like if you see things that maybe you don't necessarily like, but it's, it's your money on the line, but you're in the background somewhat? You know, it's, it's difficult because you may have specific expertise in something and maybe you think you can be helpful in certain instances, but you have to let people do what they do, right? Like you can give your advice, you can tell them, you know, what you would do in certain situations and you can talk them through different problems and potential solutions and stuff like that. And I think that's where I'm probably more helpful. Otherwise, like in a lot of cases, as an outside investor, you don't have context to some situations. You don't know what's happening on day to day. You don't know what the competitors are doing. You don't know what could be everything from like, how are ads reacting? Like, what, what, what are the ad rates on different platforms, right? Like, we should be doing this instead. Like, there's just so many things that are, that are so detailed that unless you're in the weeds every single day, you just can't know. So you have to be willing to be hands-off in a lot of aspects. And then when they need help, when you see something that you can provide value with, that's when you be a little bit more hands-on. So, no, I don't think that I've necessarily had a problem with that. I think that's one of those things where, like, to be a good investor, you have to be helpful where you can, but also know that, like, yeah, you own like a smaller state, but like this isn't your company. And like the people that are running it, they're risking their livelihood. And right there, this is how they're planning to make money. And this is how their family's going to live. So if you're investing in the right people, they're going to be plenty incentivized to figure it out. And hopefully you can just be a small part of that. Yeah, totally. So the, the work's not upfront to find the right people to invest in rather than worrying about like, oh, damn, we've got some loose cannon on the job and I, I've got to step in and make adjustments. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. The work's done up front. You just got to find the yeah. right people and then hopefully it's, it's a little bit easier to ride from there. I thought it could be fun to break down a deal, how that actually works for us. Maybe, I don't know if there's one come to mind. We spoke about the bagel shop. If we want to run with that, that's cool. Otherwise, maybe the lacrosse league, I'll let you choose. How are you assessing these opportunities? The bagel one was easy. I was just like, these are fucking awesome bagels. He had other people that were joining the deal that were well-respected in the food industry. I forget the name of the restaurant, but the guy that was leading the deal, he had owned, he owned like a, a serious food franchise. So there was some kind of operational expertise that was entering the deal as well. And it was a relatively small valuation at the time. And it was one of those things where like, the product is amazing. If they're able to get this in front of the right people, I have no doubt it's going to be successful. So let's make a bet on this because it's small enough to where you're able to get a decent chunk of equity. And if things go well, you're going to make a good amount of money. If things don't, it's not going to be the end of the world. So like that was like a fairly easy one from a risk reward perspective. There's other ones like the Premier Lacrosse League where I invested in that at a later stage. And the reason I did that was just because it was, it was just such a natural fit for the audience that I had. I had met Paul and Mike Rabel, the brothers that run the business. I thought they were excellent operators. They were doing things exactly how I would do them. I was just watching them from afar for a while. I didn't even know them. And I was like, okay, this marketing's on point. This branding is phenomenal. The way that you're broadcasting the sport is great. The way that you're innovating the rules is exactly how I would do it too. And when I partnered that with a lot of the stuff that was happening at the grassroots level, lacrosse is one of the fastest growing sports in the country over the last several years. It's just about getting sticks and balls in more people's hands. I saw that there was a clear opportunity to grow the game. This has never been done on a professional level before. And I thought to myself, how cool would it be to be on the ground floor of a sports league, right? So 
you know, obviously I met the founders and talked to them and I helped them out with a few things beforehand. And we just talked, you know, strategy and advice and stuff like that. And it was just such a natural fit where I felt like I could really help them out from a, a distribution standpoint and, and help the league grow. And if I was able to make some money doing that and obviously some friends too, then that was worth it to me. So basically every deal is a little bit different. You've got the ones where you've kind of got a little bit of skill set and a natural gravitation towards that. And that's just like, you know what good looks like and you're seeing it in front of your eyes and you're seeing the people. So you're just like, okay, cool. This makes sense. And likewise, on the other front, a couple of things to call out, operational expertise, great product, limited downside. And again, on the side of um, the lacrosse league, like what's the macro trends? Is there room for growth? That kind of thing. Yeah. The downside one is interesting because when you think about venture, like your downside is you lose your money, right? Like it's capped. Whatever money you put in, you lose it. And if you do every deal with the understanding that, I mean, you should do every deal with the understanding that you can lose your money on this deal, right? Like you should almost expect it. In a lot of cases, I just write that money off because you have no idea when you're going to see it again, if you're going to see it again. So you do the deal. And obviously the hope is that that doesn't happen, but you know that your, your downside is capped. You know that, you know, if you're investing $5, you could lose $5. But the beautiful part about venture and the reason why I love it so much is that the upside is virtually unlimited, right? Where you know, okay, I could lose this money, but if this goes well, you can make a hell of a lot more money. And I think that downside protection is one of the reasons why it can suck because, you know, if you don't want to lose money, then it's not a great industry. But if you're able to stomach some of the losses and, and you're able to pick the right winners, it can be incredibly lucrative too. Makes sense. And are there any red flags? Like, are there any things you just like, okay, hard avoid? There's a bunch of different things. I mean, it's, it's hard to, you know, just think about them off the top of my head, but founders that are spending recklessly, that have no regard for the balance sheet, people that have started several companies that have failed. That can go either way if the if there's a difference in this one, but if it's, you know, the same team just running it back on a third or fourth product, maybe that's not a great sign. You know, the reputation that they have around the industry, that's super important when you talk to other people of like, this founder was great, this one wasn't, how big the industry is, right? If it's a super small industry where you don't think they're going to be able to sell it for the right multiple to be able to make you a considerable amount of money when we talk about power laws, right? To hit a home run, that is sort of not necessarily a red flag from a founder perspective, but it's one of the things that'll stop and make you say, maybe this isn't a good one. So much of it too just comes down to like the founder itself, right? Like pop up, this is a great bagel. Premier Lacrosse League, like this is a really good idea. But if you don't have faith in the founder to go execute and to like really build the business and, and you don't have an understanding that they're passionate about it and they're going to do a really good job and like this is their livelihood on the line, then that's where you get into trouble, right? Like you have to have confidence in the founder ultimately because they're the one that's like leading the ship. They're the one that's hiring and firing people. They're the ones that's like, trying to drive revenue. They're the ones that are giving updates. They're the ones that are essentially at first, at least kind of the marketing department and the, the ad department and stuff like that. So that's super important. I think first and foremost, like you just have to gel and have a good relationship with the founder. Yeah, you got to have trust in the person. Makes sense. Yeah. You're doing this with your brothers. Is that correct? Yep. I have four brothers. So there's five of us total. Everyone's involved to some degree or another. And really what it was, was just, we love working together in some capacity. And we don't do all of the deals together. Pomp Investments is really just the company that we invest out of. But, you know, some people don't want to do certain ones. Some people do want to do certain ones. So there's there's some leeway there. But we just thought it would be fun to uh, invest personal money out of a family office and do it together. So that's really where that came from. And we've been doing it for a few years now. And it's, it's certainly been a way to uh, have a little bit of fun, challenge each other intellectually, and so far make some money along the way. Is that something you would, you would advise people that as general, it's better to go in and do this kind of thing? with other people, people you know, like, and trust versus maybe going out on your own? In most cases, yes. I think it depends on the circumstances. Again, in most cases, I would actually argue that raising money can be super helpful. If you don't have a 
huge track record or if you don't have a bunch of personal capital yourself. Offloading some of that risk by raising capital and collecting a fee and a percentage of the profits is a good way to get some skin in the game without putting your, yourself personally financially on the line. So there's certainly a way to go do that. If you have a track record, if you feel confident in your abilities, if you have some capital that you're able to invest in this stuff, then doing it yourself and personally can be a good option. But off of that, if you're able to do it with people that you enjoy working with, that people that are smart, that bring something to the table, that have an area of expertise, whether it's evaluating deals or finding deals or structuring deals or whatever it is, then that can be super additive to your process because now you're, you're multiplying your capacity rather than just doing it all yourself. So there's definitely some nuance to this. I think everyone's probably in a little bit different of a situation, but for me, it just felt like all of us working together, finding deals on our own and bringing them to the table, structuring these deals, figuring out the best way to compete and make sure that we get in the deals that we want to. That's all been additive for me, for sure. I feel like coming full circle in all of this, it would be helpful if someone's listening to this conversation at home, right? And they're saying, okay, I love what Joe's done. I can see how audience first into business, into investment, and then every single one of those basically feeding off each other is such a logical approach in this new world that we find ourselves in. If you had to like lay out the path, the, the high level steps for someone that's just getting started, starting with content, building the business around that, expanding out either into their own products and services or going into and, and investing in other people like you've done, what would that look like at a high level? I mean, I can only talk about my own personal experience, but I think that it's served me decently well and you know, everyone can adapt to themselves. But ultimately, I think the first step is just finding something that you're super passionate about, right? Like when I used to hear that, I always thought it was kind of silly. It's like, who likes work, right? Like no one likes work. What are you going to do that you like doing forever? And I think it's still kind of true to some degree, like no matter how much you love something, work is eventually going to feel like work, right? Like there's certainly times where I don't feel like writing a newsletter or I don't feel like recording a podcast or it's midnight and I just got home from a trip and it's got to go out in the morning and you're like, oh, I love sports business, but like you don't love it at that moment, right? So there's certainly, <laughs> there's certainly things that come up where it's hard or harder to be passionate about, but I really think that you need to find something that you're willing to do for a long time, potentially forever, right? And for me, that was talking about sports business. So I think that's step number one. Step number two is, in this case, just building an audience around that, right? Just finding a skill set that it's something that you're one of the best people in the world at or one of the few people in the world that can do it. And again, for me, it was sports business. I thought there was a white space to be able to go and do this online using 21st century digital platforms like newsletter and social media and podcasts and other things like that, YouTube and so forth. And so that's what I went and did. And what I found was like, you can go build that audience, then you have to monetize that audience, which you can do through ads and other things like that. And then what do you want to do from there? And I think this is where like that opens up a little bit for other people, right? There's a bunch of different options. For me, it was, I'm going to go do investing. For other people, it may be like, you know, I exclusively want to go do consulting. I exclusively want to create products and services. I want to launch an app. I want to just chill, right? And, you know, invest my money in the S&P and just like not worry about anything and just be like a content creator. And none of those options are necessarily right or wrong. It's just finding that step two of like, okay, now that you've had some success at level one, how do you multiply that? How do you compound that by using that to go do other things, whether it's investing, whether it's launching products and services, whether it's building a podcast network, there's a bunch of different options. But I think that after you figure out kind of what you want to do and you've built that up, then you figure out kind of like how you're going to use that to multiply everything, how to get bigger ad deals, how to make more money off the money that you're already making. And I think that's where it gets really interesting for people because 
the amount of options that you can do from that has really opened up over the last few years. I mean, we got YouTubers with energy drinks now. There's a bunch of different things that you can do. And that's what gets me really excited is like the ability to build businesses off audiences is only getting stronger by the day. And the amount of options that people have to be able to go do that is only getting bigger by the day. And those are things that I think everyone has to look at as you continue to build your audience. It's like, okay, advertising deals are good, but how can I make more money off of this by doing other things too? 100%. And I think the big thing there, and it's something that I've heard Hamozi talk about as well, is like, find something that you can talk about forever. Because at the end of the day, it is a long game. It is a grind. There are going to be times at midnight, like you said, where you're home and you're like, I do not want to do this. So if at yep. least it aligns to something that you do generally like, that's going to keep you going. Because it sounds like it's just a battle of attrition. So therefore, you need to be able to talk about it for forever without any return. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's gotten to the point where like, I don't even consider most of this. I don't really consider any of it work. Obviously, it is work. And you know that's what you do to pay bills and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's just something that I, I enjoy talking about. And I would do regardless. I was doing this before I started doing this. I was talking to family and friends and reading articles and watching TV and watching sports and games and stuff like that. And like, it was one of those things that I always enjoyed. I've been this way my entire life. So I knew that it was something that I was going to be able to do for a really long time. And that's where that battle of attrition comes in. Like if you're able to do it, I'm sure you've seen the podcast stats. I know many other people have too, like a percentage of podcasts that don't make it past a certain number of episodes, like plus three. Yeah. And it was just 90%. like the advice they gave me when I first started was just like, just go for as long as you can. Just like literally <laughs> go for as long as you can. And eventually you'll find an audience. Like if you think about the number of people in the world that are listening to podcasts, if your podcast is good and you keep going and you go for years, you'll eventually find an audience. And that's really what I've clung to. And like, I feel like we're we're now just a little bit starting to scratch that surface, but we still have so long to go because it's only been a few years. And if I'm willing to do it for three years, what if I'm willing to do it for 10 years or 20 years? Like that audience is only going to multiply and get bigger and bigger every single year. Yeah. I've heard Russell Brunson talk about, you've got to stick around long enough for your audience to be able to find you, which is basically what you're saying there. You got to be in the game long enough because it might take a while for A, to build your skill set to actually be interesting and a value, but B, for people that actually care about you to find you. It's not direct. I think this is a really nice place to tie it all together because you started talking about, you know, three years, 10 years, et cetera. Do you have a vision of what you're trying to build? Like, let's just say 10 years down from now, or are you more just in the flow of like, I know the actions that I need to be taking today and I'm now just taking opportunities as they come. How do you approach it in that way? And if it's a vision, what is that vision? Yeah, I think it's a balance, right? Like I don't necessarily have a grand vision of what I want things from a business side to be in a decade or two decades. It's more about creating, I think, the life, right? Which is like, what do you value most in life? What do you want to do? Is it money? Is it freedom? Is it both? What is it, right? And you take daily actions like that and you assess opportunities as they come up to make that a priority. And if you make that a priority over the next decade, there's a good chance that's what your life's going to look like when you open your eyes in the decade, right? It's like, okay, if I thought about this every single day and I evaluated every opportunity that came across my desk with those thoughts in mind, chances are you're going to pick those most of the time, the right ones, right? You're going to pick the things that align with those values that give you that life that you want. And for me, that's always been the most important thing is like, if, I, if I'm 40, 50, 60 years old, like, what do I want my life to look like? And I think that's been a huge part of my decision-making process over the time of like, do you want to be the CEO of a company? Do you want to be constantly tweeting? Do you want to do other things, right? Like, do you want to be investing? Do you want to spend time reading? Do you want to retire, right? Like there's a bunch of different things that you can consider. And that's the lens that people should be looking at it through is like, what do I want life to look like at that point? 
Yeah, I think the lens is how do I want to be spending my time more than anything else by the sounds of it? It's not so much that I, I want this business to be at this size. It's like, okay, what do I want to be doing on a daily basis? How do I want to be spending my time? Who with, et cetera. Absolutely. Man, that's such awesome advice. And I've got so much from this today. So thank you. Thank you so much. Just lastly, where can people find you if they haven't already found you? Because you're uh, enormous on all platforms. But where's the best place to connect? <laughs> you guys can just go to uh, my Twitter account, Joe Pompliano, at Joe Pompliano. And I have a link in bio there. And you can find anything you want from the podcast to newsletter, YouTube, whatever. But this was great, man. You're really good at this. So I appreciate you having me on. And that was, that was a fun conversation. I've watched a couple of good episodes from uh, some guys a few steps further, further ahead than me. Yeah, you did a great job. Awesome, man. Cheers. All right, guys, that's the conversation with Joe Pompliano. I don't know about you, but I feel a whole lot more informed about the audience first business playbook he laid out. For me, the most memorable line in that whole interview was get more shots on goal. And it actually reminds me of some advice I heard from Hamozi recently. He said, and I'm paraphrasing here, almost anybody will get pretty good at something from 20 hours of focused effort. Yep, most people take 20 years to do the first hour, aka get more shots on goal. I was blown away by the fact that Joe posted as high as 10 times per day when he was getting started. I thought I was doing well at three times a day, but he just blew my standard out of the water. So to all the aspiring business owners out there, remember Joe's advice. Start with what you can do now. Focus on building your audience and leverage that into even bigger opportunities. As Joe's proven, the path from content to business and then investments, if that's what interests you, it's not just a dream. It's a viable model for success, especially in today's digital age. Guys, thank you so much. I appreciate you listening more than you can imagine. This has been such an awesome start to the podcast. I've been getting so many great messages from your all of support and things that you've loved. If you did like this one, if you got a lot of value out of Joe's wisdom, I just ask that you share this with one friend. Pull out your phone, open up Spotify or Apple Podcasts, hit the send button, one friend. That's all it is, 30 seconds, but it'll make a massive difference for this podcast. And together we can grow it so we can get more awesome guests like Joe, pick their brain and become better small business owners. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next show on Thursday. We've got another juicy episode coming your way and it actually dives into some of the tips and tricks that you can start using to create your own newsletter and start growing your audience that way in the same way Joe did. So it's got some nice tactical advice there that you're not going to want to miss, especially if the path that Joe outlined today is something that caught your eye and you're thinking maybe that could be for me. So keep an eye out for that one and I'll catch you then. Cheers. Cheers.